The framework of business is completely different in the new normal. To explore culture as the strategy, we have to look in places we haven't before. Looking into company culture from the C-suite to employees and from Fortune 500 to startups. It's time to understand the human side of company culture and the new shape it is taking. This is The Conversation on Culture Factor 2.0, and I'm your host, Holly Shannon. I'm often asked, does my business need a podcast? My answer is yes, that nothing else is the fast track into thought leadership and being established and seen as the expert in your industry as podcasting. What's increasingly evident is that it's a branding machine. It kicks doors open for you to have conversations with leaders. It creates a pathway to partnerships and connections on a deeper level. Social media cannot begin to touch this level of traction. You will not be your industry's best kept secret. Your ideas and business will have global reach. The added benefit will be tons of content you can repurpose across social media easily. No more writing blogs. It also makes your sales force much more agile. Having a podcast is a great lead generation tool. It's a pull marketing tool to bring people to your website, people that are interested in your product. So nothing works faster, not to mention it's great for your search engine optimization. So step into your power. Go to hollyshannon.com to launch your podcast now. Now on to our show. Hi, everybody. This is Holly Shannon with Culture Factor 2.0. And today I have Stefan Arstall here who has founded the Beach Lifestyle Inspired direct-to-consumer e-bike brand, Tower Electric Bikes, in 2018. Uh, It's a diversified sister company tacked onto an established direct-to-consumer SUP, company Tower Paddle Boards. It's the most searched brand in paddle boards, which after being funded by Mark Cuban on ABC's Shark Tank in 2021, went on to become one of the biggest success stories in the history of the show. In 2015, Tower was ranked number 239 out of the Inc. 500 list of America's fastest growing companies. To date, under the guidance of CEO Stefan Arstall, they have done well over 40 million in sales and their growth continues. In 2015, to challenge long-held delusions about unhealthy startup work culture, Stefan moved his whole company to a five-hour workday and would later write a book titled The Five-Hour Workday about that experience. This would spread the idea to tens of millions of people worldwide and get press in over 20 countries. And today, we have him on Culture Factor 2.0. Welcome, Stefan. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Let's go back in time to 2015 when the idea behind the five-hour workday came to be and how that maybe inspired um, how you treated the startup culture you were in and your book. Yeah, so, uh, you know, really I started, um, I've been in the startup culture sort of my entire career. I came out of grad school in 1999 um, I worked for a company for about five years. It was a small, maybe five, seven person company in radiology, um, but in the in the internet space. So it was startup and sort of internet startup uh, culture. Um, and then I went off onto my own um, for about uh, six or seven years uh, with a company called buypokerchips.com. It was just me, one person. So I wasn't really working with other people. So there wasn't really a culture to that, I suppose. And then in 2010, 
uh, I started Tower Paddleboards. That's the company that we moved to a five-hour day in 2015. Um, and really, that was a beach lifestyle company. So we, um, you know, our core product was stand-up paddleboards. And, um, and then we very quickly diversified into surfboards and skateboards and snorkel equipment and, you know, bikes. And now we have tower electric bikes and, and, but everything was sort of beach lifestyle, this Southern California, you know, work hard, play hard type company. And we attracted a lot of people into the company uh, because they were interested in sort of the surf culture and stuff like that. But also, you know, it was, it was all sort of young people right out of school, sort of really sort of smart kids. And then, um, they were interested because it was a technology company in a sense you know we were disrupting retail because we were direct to consumer selling these paddle boards for half price we were leveraging you know online marketing online tools uh, we were leveraging amazon and so that was the type of culture um, that we had and we had success you know and uh, by 2015 we had grown we were doing about maybe five million a year with a, a team of five people um, you know, and we were 2014, I think we were the fastest growing company in San Diego. And then the next year we were one of the fastest growing in the nation. Um, so we, we felt we had proved um, that we could be this sort of, you know, fast growing company. Uh, but how do we make that company? How do we turn that company into a big company, you know, a hundred million dollar company or an enduring brand basically. And so that's, those are the questions I started to ask about that time. And, um, you know, what I found is when I was, you know, researching brands and what sort of these great brands like do was that they live their brand. And that was something that we were not doing. You know, we were here, we were a startup two blocks from the beach, you know, telling people to, you know, knock out of work and go paddle boarding or, you know, work hard, play hard. And we were just working hard. Um, so we were just that sort of startup. So I said, well, look, we've got to uh, live our brand more authentically. And uh, the, the five-hour workday concept, which was, you know, coming in at eight o'clock in the morning and leaving at one o'clock, uh, straight through, uh, no lunch, um, that really dovetailed perfectly with our brand. And we said, look, like, we know how to do this. Um, and this is kind of how I had been working personally, you know, the last 15 years. And it's kind of how all of my um, sort of other entrepreneurs that I knew and I, I sort of networked with that were having, like, sort of great success in the modern, you know, work environment um, we're doing, they're coming in, knocking out their work and getting out of there. And I said, why are, why are employees doing it differently? Why is the American workforce doing it differently? And so I thought, look, we're going to do a test here. We're going to do a three month test. Um, but there was a, another side to this too, was one was we were going to, we wanted to live our brand to be authentic. Um, but the other side of it was I basically in 2010, it was very easy to hire people. Um, you know, it was probably 10% unemployment. We had just come out of this sort of uh, depression, uh, recession. And um, then in 2015, you're looking at near full employment. Um, so I wasn't able to get the same great people and bring them in. And I said, I need to renegotiate with labor. I need to give them a reason to come here. So my thought was, if I could have a five-hour workday at our company, we would be able to steal all the great, you know, workers from all the other companies around. They'd be making the same money. They would just be... You know, I wanted the people that worked at three times the speed of everybody else and just build a whole company of those types of people. So, you know, that's what we did. And, um, you know, starting in, I think, May of 2015, we did that little uh, experiment. And I told people, like, look, I'm going to give your lives back. We're going to walk out the door at one o'clock. And my ask is that you figure out how to be as productive or more productive than you were before, or you'll be fired. So put pressure on them, but at the same time, give them their life back, which I felt was uh, sort of the trade-off or the motivation that, that entrepreneurs live. Like, uh, you know, you can 
if you get your stuff done and you're productive and everything's you know firing on all cylinders, you can have this extraordinary life. If you screw that up, uh, you're going to go out of business. Um, so that's what we did. So it's really hard to get the productivity out of people in that short window of time. How successful were you? I, I mean, I have to believe like in the beginning, it was kind of like a, a, a sexy concept. Like people really bought into it. Like I'm, I'm going to work my ass off till one o'clock and I'm going surfing after. So I'm, I'm going to assume that it started out of the gate pretty good. And, and did it stay, that, stay the course? Yeah. So when, when I really looked at it, at the time before we did this, we were working and there were seven people in the company at the time. We were working 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So that's you know, and an hour lunch in there. So really that's a seven hour day, right? Um, so, you know, seven to five is not that big of a, a change is what I was thinking in my head. And then also with like lunch, there's just like a lot of waste around lunch, right? Like you have, you know, what are 20 minutes before like planning where you're going to go to lunch and all of this. And then after lunch, you have like this food coma, you get back and you're less productive. And if you look at like people's energy levels, they kind of, you know, come and go throughout the day. I mean, one of the lowest points is like, you know, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And so to me, it was like, I wasn't even losing that much. You know, if once you got rid of lunch and you went from seven to five hours, I felt you could do it. Um, so I didn't feel there was a, I thought, I thought it was going to be possible, but really what the experiment was here was putting an artificial constraint on people and somewhat of a, you know, an unrealistic con constraint. You tell people that, okay, you only got till one o'clock, you need to get all your work done, figure it out. It puts a uh, sort of an extreme pressure. And intentionally, what we're trying to create is the environment of like finals week, right? Where people are like, okay, I, I need to figure this out. I just need to do it. And if you, if you just give them that constraint, they figure out how to do it. And that's what happened, uh, you know, largely across the board. So from the productivity perspective, this actually worked really well, I would say. Um, and we did, so we did the first three months and everything worked so well. Productivity wasn't down. Our revenues were up that year, uh, you know, about 50%. So we stayed with it for almost two years. Um, some things started to happen in the company culture, which uh, you know were downsides. Were sort of un unanticipated uh, circumstances. From but from the productivity standpoint, things worked. Um, and uh, you know, an example is like in our shipping department. Like you know, when we when we rolled this out, you know, the guys in the sort of the warehouse and the shipping department are like, yeah, this sounds great for you guys in the office that just sort of sit at these desks and stare at computers. You're not really doing anything, anyways. Um, yeah, five hours is fine for you guys. They said for us, like we got to unload these containers. We've got to ship out the same number of packages and probably 50% more this year because we've been growing every year. Like it's just not going to work for us. And that's kind of what their, their opinion was. But I said, just figure it out. And what they did is they basically, and we were already a, somewhat of a productive company. We weren't like this backwoods company all of a sudden saying we're going to use productivity tools. We were using productivity tools. They were, we were using software in the, in the um, shipping department. But they figured out how to use that software better, basically. They reorganized the warehouse. They did like these little sort of spaghetti things. We didn't bring in any um, efficiency experts. They just figured it out themselves, right? And they, they started to measure stuff. And they measured their shipping time. And it was about five minutes per package at the, when we started this. And they got that down within six weeks to 2.6 minutes per package. Okay, so we've been, been wasting time for like five years, right? because they were never thinking about how they were working. They were just working and then, oh, there's more work to do, let's work harder. But nobody stepped back and just said, well, let's think about how we're doing this. 
you know, is there a way to do this faster? And that was the change. And it, you know, it happened there. It happened in all departments. And it was an unrealistic constraint because like the, you know, the, the customer service, right? You know, we only answered the phones from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Where before we were basically, you know, nine to five. Um, and we would have thought, like, I assumed we were just going to lose some business because of that. But it was going to be this sort of cost. But there was going to be this lifestyle benefit to the company. We get better people. But the reality is people went to our website, they saw our hours, and they called within those hours. We just got, you know, more people calling in a smaller window of time. Everybody adjusted. Nothing broke. That's really amazing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because, you know, you weren't working. Well, you might have been working harder, but you were working smarter. But what's so interesting is that the customer transformed the way they dealt with you as well. That's crazy. Well, and I think today we think we're in this like always on world. Like even before this, I had friends of mine that are in the e-commerce space saying, you know, you need to hire like a customer service agency that answers your phones like 24 hours a day. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like, I mean, they can get a hold of us. We sell paddle boards. This isn't 7-Eleven where people need to pop in. You buy a paddle board every, you know, three, four, five years. Like we don't need to be open 24 hours a day. Our website actually is a 24 hour automated store. Like people can self-serve. If they really need to talk to somebody, they call us during our hours. So the fact that we were open for, you know, eight hours a day or five hours a day out of 24, it didn't really matter. And especially if you look at like we're on the West Coast. So we weren't even open and available until, you know, 12 noon on the East Coast, you know. And, and then if you're in Europe, I mean, who knows what the, what the hours were. So we had sort of diluted ourselves and we were changing our office hours like drastically when really we were just minor tweak is, is, is the way I would look at it. So um, I, and I think that is because we get so used to doing things a certain way. Um, so that's what we did. We just sort of experimented with, with everything. And we even changed the store hours. Like when you could walk into the, to the shop and then, you know, everybody sort of, everybody's office hours and, you know, the marketing department. And we, we, what we changed, what changed in the company culture is we became a team of people who were spending a, you know, a couple hours of the, of the five hours a day thinking about how we were working and identifying productivity tools and learning to use them because we were forced to. And I would say that's a lot. That's really what, uh, you know, my entrepreneurial peers do. And that's why they're able to be sort of these high leverage individuals because they have an incentive to find those productivity tools. So that's really what worked with it. But there were, uh, you know, a lot of things that didn't work as well. Yeah, you, that just brought me right to my next question because this the success story is beautiful. I'm wondering where the where the fissures were, where the failures were. Could you share that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we did that for almost two years. And um, there were there's a lot of other factors going on because, you know, as a stand-up paddleboarding, selling direct-to-consumer online, the whole retail space is changing. And we were a pretty high-profile success because we were on Shark Tank. We had the Mark Cuban backing. So a lot of people saw what we did, right? And when we started in paddleboards, there was probably 80 brands competing in that space worldwide. And, you know, by that time, there was probably twice that, probably 150, 160 brands. And a lot of them saw what we were doing and they were copying what we were doing, right? So anything online that you sell becomes sort of commoditized over time. And if people see success, they sort of gravitate towards it. And they say, there's a saying, you know, the internet marketers like ruin everything, right? So you're not going to maintain those growth levels and those profit levels forever. And then sort of the, the, the shine of paddleboarding, I think, was waning a little bit where it was this hugely trending sport because people saw people paddleboarding in People magazine or something like that. 
um, it was trending and then it started to level off or it wasn't, you know, growing 100% a year. So, and then you had an Amazon effect where, you know, we, a lot of our growth was, was, you know, going on to Amazon. Like we didn't sell on Amazon initially, and then we did sell on Amazon and we became sort of a poster child for selling on Amazon. And at one point, you know, we were in Jeff Bezos annual letter to his stockholders, you know, as this sort of, here's this little company that Amazon is helping. And then Amazon started to, you know, eat its young and it, it became very clear that we needed to get off of Amazon. So it was everything was moving. So a lot of moving parts here. So the five hour workday was only one part of this, but we started to level off and we had two years where we did about seven and a half million, seven point or 7.2 million, then 7.5 million. So our growth had stopped and we started to slide a little bit after about two years into this experiment, but there were other factors, right? Um, but because we're a start, we're a small company, we're not, you know, funded uh, beyond, you know, 150,000 from Mark Cuban. Um, we have, you know, you can only do so many experiments and when times are tough, sort of the luxury of doing experiments uh, sort of goes away. You have to sort of, you know, look at reality and say, is this working? Is this not working? Do we just need to work harder here? Um, and we lost uh, at the start of 2017, we lost four people out of, out of a nine person team at the time within 90 days. So there was a sort of mass exodus from the company, right? And pretty critical people within the company. One of them I fired, so that one was you know my fault. But three other people had uh, had left, and so I'm like, geez, I've lost like half my team here uh, in 90 days. And I'm like, these are young kids that are making pretty good money. They have a five-hour workday. Uh, we're in this sort of beach lifestyle company with offices, you know, a block from the beach. I'm like, why are people leaving? That's insane. Like, no, I would never leave a company if I was that age and I had a five-hour workday and I was getting paid. And so I, you know. I said, maybe they just don't appreciate, you know, the five hour workday. Maybe it's been become an entitlement. Like, okay, I'm, we're going to get rid of that because it's clearly not working to attract and maintain and retain people. So I thought, well, it's not working. I don't understand really why it's not working, but it's not working. So that's when we went back to uh, regular hours, but we still did the five hour workday in the summers. So from June 1st uh, to the end of August, for those four months, we would do the five-hour workday, and that's really when we did about 70% of the revenue in our company. It was when we were busiest, but I wanted to squeeze people uh, for time during our busy time because that constraint there forced us to think, okay, we got, got all this stuff to do. Like, how are we going to get it done? We're going to need to use productivity tools. So I like that element of it, but, you know, the rest of the year, we were going to go back to startup hours and, um, you know, sort of focus on uh, you know, really getting stuff done. And so we, we went to that hybrid model. And in going through this whole process, and, you know, I sort of looked at this a few months after, and I think what had really happened is we had broke the company culture that we had. That's why people left, in my opinion. It's like in a startup company, you form these really strong bonds with people that you're working with, because you're basically in the trenches working these long hours. Work is sort of a central piece of your life. Now, if you contrast that to, you know, our five hour workday company where we're walking out the door at one o'clock, work is just this thing you do before noon that sort of affords uh, this, you know, incredible life you have and your outside life becomes much bigger, which is a great thing for employees. In my opinion, a lot of the people that left got into relationships and they, you know, moved away somewhere. One, one girl went like, uh, you know, did the van life across country. Another person went into um, like a consulting agency or something like that. They had acquired skills and they were, they were moving on, but it didn't work for the company because we weren't retaining these people, right? 
So I think that's what happened is we broke that company culture because it was very easy for people to leave that company. And I think in, in, a, in, a, in a company with great company culture, I think it's really hard for people to leave the company because of the people they work with because they have these, such these great you know, common bonds with these people. And I think we broke that you know, by making work just this thing you do before lunch. So we went to this hybrid model and that's really what we've been doing uh, since. Um, and I think it's, it's worked a little better. It's incredibly vulnerable of you to say all that, you know, to say that, you know, we broke it. You know, we, we were part of the reason why people left, that they didn't feel that bond that you would get in a typical startup culture. Uh, you know, it's pretty huge that you could say that. Um, did you end up doing any exit interviews or you, you just sort of, that was it, you lost them and, and you just moved on? Yeah, I mean, I still know all of the people and, you know, I'm still, you know, have lunch with, with people or whatever. So there wasn't any formal exit interviews. We didn't mm -hmm. like formally study any of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, that's what it seemed to me to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we still are, are now trying to regrow that company culture. You know, we've, we've shrank down too. We, we went from about seven and a half million in revenue down to two million in revenue. Uh, we walked away from about four and a half million in revenue on Amazon intentionally because we said that ship has sailed. So we got out of there. Um, and then last year we ended up doubling revenues again and we're, we're growing the team again, but we're basically having to start over with company culture and get back to that sort of uh, what I would call sort of a healthy company culture. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's been definitely, you know, sort of a learning experience and I never would have expected that from the, I thought the five hour workday would have in, improved the company culture, um, but there was, there was problems. Yeah, but how incredible that you gave that a try, that you tried to incorporate the lifestyle of what you were creating and, you know, change the held belief of what a startup was supposed to look like. So, you know, I, I think that's a bravo to you, like giving it a try. I mean, you, you don't know till you know. Um, I would kind of be remiss to not tap back into the conversation you said about Amazon eating their young and then you losing what something like 2.5 million in sales during that time. Can, can I ask you to lean in on that little piece of the story? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, um, and it was really, we had at the, at the height of the company, we did about seven and a half million in revenue. Um, and four and a half of that was through Amazon. So it was, it was, you know, more than 50% of our revenue, but, we just came to the conclusion that uh, Amazon it was taking a larger and larger chunk of revenue, right? Um, they, had, they had become a monopoly. When we first started selling on Amazon in, you know, I had been selling on Amazon as, as far back as like 2008 with the poker chip company. So I knew it existed. Even when we started the paddleboard company, I knew like we were gonna sell on Amazon because it was, we could tap into a huge market there. Um, but we didn't because we were growing so fast initially just with our own sales. We didn't have enough money or enough inventory to even split it into inventory to send to Amazon and inventory here. Uh, but then at some point we did and we, we adopted them. And when we started, it, it was basically a 15% revenue share to Amazon. And then when you, you factor in all the fees and, you know, shipping and all this weird stuff, you know, they forced you to do two day shipping and all these sort of costs, um, it came to about 20, 25, 26%, right? That's what, you know, cost. So we sold something for $400 in Amazon. Amazon would take a hundred of that, a little over. Um, 
Okay, that was sort of what I would consider like a hybrid uh, retail channel. Because if we were gonna sell in regular retail stores, they're gonna take a Keystone markup, which is essentially 50% of the revenue. We sell for 400 in a retail store, they're taking $200, right? And you know, the whole reason we were success successful um, was we were a direct-to-consumer brand. We were selling half-price paddle boards. You could get the same paddle board in a retail store anywhere in the world, but you're gonna pay twice as much. So that was our, our benefit. By using Amazon, okay, we had to increase our prices a little bit to sort of factor in, you know, Amazon's cut. And at the time, I thought, you know, that's kind of a fair cut. I was kind of pegging it at 15% when I said that's a fair cut. And, you know, I was sort of doing fuzzy math, but then there, at, you know, after a while, I realized, well, it's 25, 26%, not ideal, but okay. Okay, so then Amazon started to get more and more popular. And people saw what we were doing. When we went onto Amazon initially, we basically opened the stand-up paddleboard category with them. It didn't exist before on Amazon. So we were early there. But then all of a sudden you've got, you know, 50 brands, 100 brands selling on Amazon. Now it becomes this uh, very hyper-efficient, competitive marketplace, right? And then to get found, you basically have to advertise. So then you're paying 10%, 20%, 30% in advertising to the point where Amazon is taking 50% of revenue, and that is where the world is today. And, and most consumers aren't even aware of this, but you know everything you buy on Amazon, Amazon takes about half of that, right? So what's happened here is we've gone back to retail. So the idea of the direct-to-consumer uh, business model was to basically take the savings of globalization, you know, the ability to make stuff very inexpensively in another country, change the distribution strategy, take that direct-to-consumers, and pass on the savings of uh, basically globalism to consumers. Um, and that's why all of the retail stores in the world were disrupted. You know, that's why Amazon disrupted them. But now, because you have Google um, you know, in the form of advertising and Amazon in the form of advertising and sort of a marketplace have become these powerful you know, middlemen, uh, monopolies basically, they now take you know, 50% of the revenue here if you if you sell through, you know, advertising and 50% here if you sell through Amazon. So we're basically back to retail. Consumers have been opted out of any of the savings of globalization and they pay the same what they used to pay, but now they just, you know, buy it through Amazon and then Amazon and Google become, you know, trillion dollar companies. So that's the nature of the world that we're in. And we saw this because, you know, I've been in the online space since 1999 and I saw the disruption and then uh, all the middlemen disappear. And then I saw two big middlemen like reforming. And this is what we saw. And so, in, you know, right in about 2017 there, we said, like, look, like this ship has sailed. Like, you know, Amazon doesn't necessarily care about the brands. Um, and we need to, like, leave here or we're going to be hanging on to this and making less and less money every year. And Amazon's just going to take everything. So we started walking away from that intentionally. And obviously we had to take a huge revenue haircut to do that. But I think it was, uh, you know, that was the correct decision. There's a lot of people that are still sort of clinging on to that, making less and less money. Um, and then it's all going to disappear at once. So that's, that's the decision of why we, we walked away from there. Um, you know, and I still buy a lot of stuff from Amazon, but I just realized what it is. It's essentially a convenience store. And, you know, but you don't go grocery shopping at the convenience store. You pick up something when you're in a hurry and you're, you know, you don't care so much about money. You just want it. But, you know, selling paddle boards and like with tower electric bikes, selling $2,000 electric bikes, you don't go to a convenience store for that stuff. No, and, and you lose out on the customer service aspect um, in, in Amazon. Um, so I think that makes sense that you, 
shifted. That's a great story though. And thanks for breaking that down. Cause I think that that was really part of it. And, um, so you, you walked us into this conversation about e-bikes. So, um, I would love to, um, have a little conversation about that. Cause that is a departure from skateboards, surfboards, paddle boards, which are, you know, uh, there's no mechanical real, you know, entity to any of those things that you use out on the water or on a sidewalk. But when you start getting to an e-bike, you know, now you're introducing a a whole new supply chain and charging and batteries and the whole thing. Um, I I happen to know a little, I I happen to just be slightly, uh, you know, uh, I'm not gonna say dangerous. I, I, I know a little bit of information about it. My husband's in a startup in the battery industry. So I know for a fact that you have like a whole different challenge with the e-bikes. So um, share, you know, obviously, you know, it's part of the surf life, but like that's a, a departure. So, so what made you get into e-bikes? Yeah. So, um, so really we're, we do electric beach cruisers um, and sort of the tower brand is uh, the way we define that and how we see the, we see the tie in. We weren't really looking at how complicated the product was, but you're exactly right. It's totally different complication level than, you know, paddle boards, even the inflatable paddle boards. Um, but what we think of as the tower brand is like, you're, you know, you're on the beach, uh, you know, close your eyes, you're next to a lifeguard tower, everything you, you see, smell and uh, hear is that that's part of our brand. You know, so if you imagine that and just close your eyes, you would feel like, you know, the warm sand on your feet, you would feel the sun coming down, you would, uh, you know, you'd be able to smell like the salt air, you would be able to smell suntan lotion, you if you opened your eyes, you would see like, you know, beautiful fit people, you know, tanned all over the beach, you'd see a lot of activity with, you know, skateboards, and you know, bikes going down the boardwalk, you'd see people surfing. So any of those things are encompassed in this tower brand. That's sort of the imagery for our brand. And so, you know, electric beach cruisers definitely fits. I mean, the reason we came up with this is, you know, the paddle boards was I live on the bay here in San Diego and I saw people paddle boarding. And we're like, what's that? And then I see more people and more people and more people. And we're like, we need we should do that. And uh, you know, and then you see people skateboarding. So and then then I moved on to the, the boardwalk here in San Diego and I started to see these like, you know, electric scooters and electric skateboards and electric bikes. And I'm like, this is, this is our brand. We need to be making that thing because we basically introduce people to the beach lifestyle, Southern California beach lifestyle, and we export that all over the world. So that's how it fits with our brand on the complication level, which we didn't even factor in initially. Um, yeah, it's a different it's, ball game. Yeah, supply and it's chain. a different <laughs> level of customer service. Um, and there's, there's more things that can go wrong. Um, so you really need to have, you know, good factories and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I've been dealing and sourcing out of China for about, uh, you know, 15 years. And so I've, I've been through this a few times and, you know, getting crappy factories and then, you know, getting good factories and understanding the difference. One of interesting to circle back to the five hour workday is, you know, using productivity tools to do all of your work. One of the tools we use is a site called Panjiva. Uh, dot com so p-a-n-j-i-v-a.com and it's basically they aggregate um since 9-11 anything that comes into the uh the country on a container um has to be public information this was a rule put in by homeland security or whatever so uh the origination address the destination address the weight of the container and a general description of what's in that container that's all public information 
So this Pangeba site, they aggregated all that information. So you can go on there and put, you know, uh, paddleboards and it will show you all the shipments that say paddleboards on them and show you, you know, what address, the factory that it came from, where it went to. And then you can zero in on that factory and see all the shipments that they did and where they sent. You can zero in on your competitor's brand and see all of their shipments and what factories they come from them and if they're growing over time or shrinking over time. So incredible information, right? So this is a sourcing tool. Um, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to source and perfect something in, you know, the electronics industry, that was a very complicated thing, right? Like you're saying very complicated products. It would involve years of trips to China and quality control there and back and forth. And, you know, till you finally have a good factory that you can, that is reliable and you can use, and then something happens there and they blow up and then you need to find another one. So it was this constant hassle. Well, now in, you know, two hours from your couch, you know, at home, you can uh, basically source and, uh, and, and basically get the quality of a factory because you can see if they provide product to you know, some of the top brands in the industry and if their shipments are going up every year, I can easily just you know, write a $50,000 check to them, know that it's not a scam, that they are gonna have good quality and all of this stuff. I've been to China one time in the last 15 years um, because of using tools like that. And I, you know, I talk a lot at you know, universities and stuff like that, even to like, you know, procurement departments, they've never heard of this tool, um, which is just remarkable to me. It's been around for you know, probably 10, 12, 15 years, and people aren't even aware of productivity tools like this because of the way we work in America. We just throw time at things, and if, if you put a constraint on somebody like say, okay, you've got a source out of China, but you can't go there, kind of like in the pandemic now, how are you going to do that? And what you'll do is you'll find productivity tools like this that already exist. And they're cheap tools or free in a lot of cases. I think everybody who listens to this that's doing business with China is going to be flooding that website. I'm really excited to share this with my Culture Factor 2.0 community. I've published Zero to Podcast. It was a book that I built to start my podcast. And I created it for myself just so that I could make other podcasts down the road. And then I realized that it's not just for me, it's for anyone looking to try podcasting for personal or professional reasons. So I'm also really excited to tell you that it already hit the top 10 in three best-selling categories on Amazon and number one in hot new releases in two categories. And even more exciting, the University of Chicago now carries it in their bookstore. So go buy your copy and get started. Zero to Podcast will be in the show note. I'll leave a link there. Or you could go to hollyshannon.com and you could buy the book and get any help you need building it for you or your company. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this interview. Please go to the next episode to start the rest.